What is the Gen AI opportunity in tax? Here are some thoughts from EY and Real-Time Insights. Tax has always been an area of heavy data and heavy rules. Generative AI opens up an opportunity for tax professionals to use natural language that they're comfortable using to query the data, to ask different questions, and provide new business insights. Learn more at ey.com. Hey there, it's Tracy Alloway. And Jill Weisenthal. We are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast, and we want to tell you about a new podcast and video series you are not going to want to miss. The Deal, co-hosted by Yankees legend Alex Rodriguez. Every week, A-Rod and Bloomberg reporter Jason Kelly speak with big-time athletes, entertainers, and executives. Like Maria Sharapova, Michael Strahan, Derek Jeter, and more. The Deal takes you behind the scenes into the world of sports, media, and entertainment. And dives into the wins, losses, and lessons learned along the way. From Bloomberg Podcasts and Bloomberg Originals, you can listen to The Deal on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch it on Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Originals on YouTube. I like to remain, you know, calm and collected during times of crisis. That seems <laughs> to be a very rare trait, a very rare trait for anyone. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 tough when things are happening so quickly. Yes. And when something like this happens that really nobody saw coming was the yeah. thing. I mean, we were having meetings. I was having meetings the week before the Hamas attack on Israel where the question of sort of Middle East tensions or Middle East crisis would come up. And the general feeling was that like, no, things look pretty quiet. We've got Saudi is uh, Iran normalization. You know, oil seems to be flowing, although there's always the U.S. OPEC uh, mm -hmm. problems. You have Saudis and Israelis kind of slowly moving towards normalization. Things seems pretty quiet. And then, bam, something yeah. huge happens that nobody really anticipated. I did a deadlift. One, two, three. Hegemony. 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 Okay, good. Oh. Okay. <laughs> what two? Hegemony. Uh, barges. This is an after-school special, except... I've decided I'm going to base my entire personality going forward on campaigning for a strategic pork reserve in the U.S. Where's the best squid ink pasta? <laughs> These are the, the important questions. Is it robots taking over the world? No, I think that, like, in a couple of years, the AI will do a really good job of making the Odd Lots podcast. <laughs> and people will say, I don't really need to listen to Joe and Tracy anymore. We do have the perfect guest. <laughs> well, in the meantime, this is lots more. A weekly chat about whatever's on our minds. This is one of those episodes where I feel like we need to get the recording date right at the top, which is October 18th, because things are moving so quickly. And we are going to be discussing the Israel-Hamas conflict. And there's just new headlines every hour, it feels like. <laughs> so we are here in the studio with Gregory Brew. He is an analyst at the Eurasia Group. We've had him on the uh, podcast before. We talked about Guyana last time. We did, yeah. But that was a happier story, I feel. Yes, the country with the fastest growing oil. But the current crisis that we're seeing, the war that's going on, this is right in your wheelhouse because it's geopolitical and your background, other than studying oil, which is what we talked to you about last time in the history of oil, uh, you have a you're expert on the history of Iran as well. So talk. Yeah, yeah. no, yeah. It, it unfortunately happens to combine the two things that I've done the most work on. And whenever that happens, it it, it generally doesn't, doesn't tend to bode very well because it yeah. means there's, you know, crises, there's disruptions, there's tensions. And yeah, I mean, 
the the crisis right now does seem to be contained to Israel and the violence in Ga uh, in Gaza, but everyone is concerned about how this could spill over into oil. Uh, you saw a very surprising reaction this morning from Iran's foreign minister making a wild claim about an oil embargo on Israel, suddenly sending oil prices up surprisingly. So I think there's a lot of I think there's jumpiness. I think there's there's concerns, broadly speaking, that this crisis could eventually spill over and start affecting oil. Wait, you said it was kind of a wild threat. Why? And also, how crazy is it that we're talking about an oil embargo like exactly 50 years after the Arab oil embargo that like contributed to 1970s inflation? I find that mind blowing, like almost to the day. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, it, history does seem to be rhyming. Right. I mean, the attack, the Hamas attack happened exactly 50 years and one day after wow. the outbreak of the Yom Kippur War in 1973. Yeah. So uh, obvious parallels. And I think, so yeah, turning things back a bit, you know, Iran's foreign minister, who is currently in Saudi Arabia of all places, made kind of a wild claim in front of press. He said Iran was going to call on all Muslim countries, including countries like Saudi Arabia and the UAE and Kuwait, to embargo oil shipments to Israel, very clearly trying to replicate what happened in 1973, or at least a version of it. And the reason why it strikes me, and I think a lot of other analysts who watch Iran and oil closely, why it strikes me as kind of a wild claim is that, first of all, you know, Iran doesn't sell any oil to Israel. Mm. Iran and Israel are antagonists. They're competitors, you know. And honestly, not many other Middle East countries sell oil to Israel either, or at least if what oil that they do sell, huh. it's a fairly small amount. And there really isn't any appetite, I think, within OPEC or the broader Middle East for another 1973, certainly not for another embargo. So I saw those comments. And also, it, it needs to be said, Iranian officials, including the foreign minister, the Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei, they've been talking a lot of tough talk over the last couple of days about how this crisis could escalate, about how Iran might have to get involved. So this kind of fits within that broader sort of rhetorical campaign that Iran's been running over the last couple of days that they haven't really followed through with in terms of direct action. So I saw the comments and I thought like, well, Iran's talking tough. There's not going to be an embargo. But markets seemed to react, right? Brent shot up yeah. from 91.50 to 92.50. It's come back down since then. But clearly there's... There's wariness and jumpiness out there about uh, how this crisis could start affecting uh, the broader market. To reiterate for people listening, we're recording this on the 18th. And so, you know, who knows what will happen in this war, this crisis, by the time people are listening to it. But this is why, you know, the oil perspective is obviously one that we're particularly interested in. Brent is still below where it was, like, at the end of September. I mean, yeah, it's been a pickup in oil prices. I mean, first of all, could it be that the concern is not so much embargo, but that the more the rhetoric gets tightened up and perhaps something where to, you know, a sort of broadening out of the war itself. I know there was a lot of talk about the Biden administration not having been particularly rigorous about sanctions enforcement. Can you fill us in what's going on with that? Yeah, totally. So I think, uh, you know, as soon as the attack happened and this crisis started growing and started taking on the proportions that it has, the immediate thought was, how was Iran involved 
how will the U.S. and Israel respond, yeah. right? Iran backs Hamas, has for years. It's a major supporter of Hamas. It supplies it with you know, weapons and funding and training. There still isn't any clear answer as to whether Iran was involved in the attack. And Iran has, as I mentioned, it's been talking tough, but it really hasn't been taking a direct role. Mm. But the bigger concern is, yes, will the U.S. and Israel decide to retaliate against Iran for its support for Hamas? And one of the major vectors that has been speculated on or discussed is this question of will the U.S. tighten restrictions on Iran's oil exports? It's been a big story this year, right? The recovery of Iran as a major oil exporter. Exports were, you know, around 700,000 barrels a day last year. They're now in the range of 1.5, 1.6 million wow. barrels a day today. Yeah. I mean, and Iran is still technically under sanction. Right. So there's been a lot of discussion of has the U.S. eased off sanctions? Is this part of a bigger deal between the U.S. and Iran? And now that this crisis has broken out, will the U.S. respond by tightening sanctions? And to me, it's a lot more complicated than just, you know, President Biden having a big button on his desk, sanctions, no sanctions, and then pushing it. And suddenly Iran oil exports fall mm -hmm. like the range of action that the U.S. could take to cut off the flow of oil. It's not quite as simple as just adding new sanctions to Iran. Iran is already under heavy, heavy sanctions. It's also a question of, you know, if the U.S. tries to do that, how will that affect the broader market? How will that affect sure. prices? It'll certainly send prices up. And also, how will it affect the one country who is taking almost all of Iran's oil, China, right? We talk about have sanctions been lowered or reduced? Not really. What's been happening is that China and small Chinese refiners have been willing to take more and more Iranian oil at low prices, right? Iran is putting a big discount on its crude. And they're taking this oil through somewhat shady means. There's ship-to-ship -ship transfers. The oil right. is being disguised in Chinese customs data. China still technically doesn't take any Iranian oil. It all gets redirected through other, hmm. other venues. So there's a lot of shadiness to this oil trade, which makes imposing sanctions by the U.S. a lot harder. But if you're cutting off the supply of oil to China which is what you know, tougher sanctions enforcement would do, the Chinese are bound to respond, right? They're not going to like that. And I think the Biden administration is wary of provoking China. Uh, and anything you do to disrupt Iran's oil exports is going to have an impact on the broader market, and it's going to send oil prices up. And that's also something that the Biden administration doesn't really want to do. So you have, you have operational constraints on how sanctions would even work. You have provoking the Chinese. You have potentially provoking the Iranians and everything that you do is going to increase the price of oil, something that this administration has really been trying to trying to avoid. So I think it's in the, the conversation, right? Tougher sanctions on Iranian oil exports. I still think the risk is fairly limited. And I think if the U.S. were to consider doing it, uh, it would be deterred by some of these more uh, negative knock on effects. Yeah. Um, what kind of response could you expect from OPEC here? Because mm. like, it feels like there's been a lot of, I mean, there's always internal drama at OPEC, but it feels like there's been even more recently with regards to, you know, output and slack, mm. extra capacity and things like that. But it's such a disparate group, like in any case. Do you get a sense of like what they might do here? Yeah, I mean, that's a really it's an interesting question, because, of course, OPEC's been pursuing, you know, supply management, market management. They've been uh, maintaining their cuts. The Saudis have been adding additional voluntary cuts to try to push prices right. upward. Um, and, you know, curiously enough, this has been happening while Iran has been increasing its exports. And it's also been happening while Saudi and Iran pursue normalization. 
so there's, you know, there seems to be some cross purposes here. There does seem to be a certain paradox in how the Saudis particularly are approaching managing this market. But in terms of what OPEC might do if the U.S. suddenly cracked down on Iran in a way that would really reduce the flow, right? Mm. In a way that would create physical, a change in the physical market to fundamentals. I, I don't know if OPEC or the Saudis would respond immediately because, as I said, anything that the U.S. would do would send prices higher. And right. that's exactly what the Saudis want, right? They oh, want right. a higher price floor. They want to rise prices maybe into the 90s, maybe close to 100. So initially, I don't think they would do a whole lot. Right. It feels like in the market, there's still an assumption that like, well, OPEC could ramp up capacity if it needed to. But like, to your point, Greg, like, I, I don't see why they would want yeah. to in that scenario. Yeah. Yeah. Prior to the attack by Hamas, as you mentioned, one of the big stories had been the sort of loosening in some sense of the physical market for Iranian oil. The other, I think it was a headline the day before the attack, I think it was from the Wall Street Journal about Saudi talking about maybe lifting its production as part of an Israel normalization. Yeah, yeah. You had a very strong condemnation from the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia towards Israel about the the bombing at the hospital, which, of course, people don't really know what happened. But obviously, the public stance from Saudi and other Gulf countries is pretty strong. What is Saudi's position here? How does it affect where it was going with its talks on Israel and so forth? Yeah, I mean, you have to remember, even though we've seen a lot over the last year or so on Saudi-Israel normalization. And even with the, you know, the so-called Abraham Accords that yeah. came together at the end of the Trump administration, right, Israel normalizing with a number of Arab states, you have to remember that, re that formal relations between Israel and the rest of the Middle East, or, or specifically the Arab world, yeah. is still a very touchy, complicated issue. There's still a great deal of, of, of history, of, of, of sentiment that Arab leaders specifically, particularly in conservative Arab states like Saudi Arabia, they have to be sort of wary of managing. And I think the Saudi approach to this crisis has been trying to thread that needle, right? You've seen Saudi condemnations of Israeli actions in Gaza. You've seen the Saudis, I mean, MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, he took a phone call with President Raisi of Iran last week, the first time they ever spoke, huh. right? And he did that in the context of this crisis. So Saudi Arabia has been trying to sort of maintain a middle line of not appearing too friendly with Israel, while also, I think, largely staying on the sidelines of the crisis. Now, what does that mean for this Israeli-Saudi normalization? You mentioned the, the piece that came out right before the crisis. It kind of got buried. Yeah. This news that Saudi Arabia was, was opening up a little bit to this idea that it would try to lower oil prices as part of this grand bargain with the U.S. and Israel. That news came out. It was greeted with a certain amount of skepticism uh, because this, you know, generally speaking, that wouldn't really align up with how the Saudis have been trying to manage markets. But it did suggest that there was progress on this deal. Now, where's the deal now? Given that the crisis yeah. is, is happening, the crisis is escalating, I would say that it's on ice, but it's not necessarily dead. Huh. Uh, I think MBS, uh, the Saudi government, uh, has to take the line that it's taken uh, for uh, political concerns, for domestic concerns. It's concerned about regional stability. But in private, I would imagine that there is still quite a lot of interest from MBS in this deal. Because remember, what were the terms of the deal being discussed? Saudi Arabia would get a security guarantee from the United States. It would get U.S. support for a civilian nuclear program. Uh, Israel and Saudi Arabia would form a sort of a united security front to contain Iran. These are all things that Saudi Arabia MBS is interested in getting. I think he's still interested in getting them now. 
he just maybe isn't willing to talk about them publicly, yeah. given the crisis that's happening. So I think the deal, yeah, the deal is on ice, but it's not dead. It will take some time to revive it, though. I mean, like this crisis could go on for weeks. It could go on for months. The worse things get in Gaza, the harder it will be for governments like Saudi Arabia to look friendly with Israel. And that all works against a deal in the short term. But I wouldn't say that it's dead. I mean, MBS is going to be in charge in Saudi Arabia for a long time. He can afford to wait for this crisis to subside or potentially even blow over and revisit a deal with Israel at some point in the future. But I don't think we're going to see much talk about it hmm. anytime soon. Hmm. Why is everyone so excited about generative AI? Here are some thoughts from EY and Real-Time Business. What's changed? Why is everyone so excited? By now, you won't find anyone who has actually not played around with a version of a generative AI model. I think what makes it interesting and exciting is really comes down to two factors. One, the power of the technology, its ability to process millions and billions of data points and create a response that is so indistinguishably human-like is fascinating. It's like you're having a conversation with the AI model, like how you and I are having this conversation right now. The second is its ease of use and ease of access. It really opens up people's mind for practical applications of this technology, both at an individual level or at an enterprise level. Learn more at ey.com. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. I have a question, slightly off topic, but not really. Your research mm. on Iran, I'm assuming you never actually got to go to the country given existing sanctions, but I'm, I'm just curious, like, what the actual process was mm. like of gathering that information and, like, did you travel? Did you talk to people on the ground? That sort of question. thing. I love these kinds of questions because it, it, it reminds me of, uh, you know, being a historian, which is my training yeah. before I came to Eurasia Group. I was at Yale. I was mostly working on my next book. So I, I wasn't able to go to Iran. That's right. I'm an American national. And at the time that I was doing my research, this was 2017 or so, it was dangerous, I think, for researchers who were Americans to go to Iran. You ran the risk of physical harm. You ran the risk of arrest. There have been Americans who have gone to Iran to do historical research who have been arrested and have remained in prison for years. Mm. Uh, I mean, what we just saw, the recent prisoner exchange between the United States and Iran, some of those individuals, none of them were historians, but they had, some of them had been held in prison for nearly 10 years for really no reason. So it, it wasn't possible for me to go to Iran to do research. But that being said, 
I was doing research on the 50s and 60s, you know, the Cold War. Right. And there's actually quite a lot of information, of documentary evidence in Farsi, in Persian, that's available in the U.S., in Europe. A lot of it is in the form of memoirs or interviews, but there are sort of collections of documents that you can find that have been published. So I, you know, writing the book that I wrote, which was mostly about oil, the Cold War, U.S.-Iranian relations, I tried to use as many of those sources as I could, right? I really, really strove to incorporate an Iranian perspective as much as I could, because I thought that perspective was important. Even if I wasn't able to go to Iran and do research there, I still felt that, you know, I, I couldn't write just another book about the U.S. and oil. I had to incorporate the Iranian but side. What is your forthcoming book about? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's very much in progress, Joe, but it... it, it what I'm going to try to do, so my last book was about the U.S. and Iran specifically in the Cold War. I wrote another, I co-wrote another book about the um, 1953 coup in Iran, okay. which also celebrated an anniversary uh, this year. Right. But my next book is going to be about oil and the U.S. more broadly in the 20th century. Uh. What I'd really like to do is examine how oil has helped sort of form the foundation for American power in the 20th century and how the oil industry Com uh, companies like ExxonMobil, but also smaller companies that are operating in Texas and other places, how they served as tools of U.S. foreign policy and formed a part of the U.S. conception of national security. So oil national security in the 20th century is kind mm. of the broad focus, but it's still, you know, in the early stages. So I'll, I'll let you know when I make more progress. All right. We'll have, we'll have you back on for that. Seems <laughs> topical, though. Yeah, I hope so. Speaking of going back to the market reaction, there's like a couple interesting things. I mean, I'm, I, in a way, I've been surprised that, you know, you expressed surprise oil popped on these headlines, which you didn't think had much teeth to them. In general, though, I've been surprised, Tracy, at like most markets for the last, you know, 10 days, they're quieter than I might have expected overall across oil, across rates, across stocks, which are more or less flat or actually slightly up over the last two weeks. It's not what I would have guessed given the intensity of the headlines and the just uncertainty of where all this is going. No, I know what you mean. Although I do think today, hold on, I'm just looking at this. It looks like today is like kind of the first day where we've seen a significant pop in gold, mm. which is like a classic um, yes. war reaction asset flight to safe haven kind of thing. True. So that's interesting to see. It does, it does feel like today with that explosion, the deadly explosion at that hospital, it feels like things have like shifted a little bit, even though there's no certainty about what exactly just happened. Yeah, we're still trying to piece together precisely what happened, right? Whether it was a rocket misfire, whether it was something caused from the Israeli side, something caused from Hamas or another group active in Gaza. I think the evidence is still kind of coming together. But there was an immediate reaction to the explosion across the Arab world. There, right. were, there were spontaneous protests in places like uh, Jordan, in the West Bank, uh, even in Iran, where the, the struggle in Palestine or the issue of the, the Palestinian people is followed quite closely. And you, you saw, as Joe mentioned, quite quick condemnations yeah. of the Israeli action from governments across the region. And to some extent, that's for a domestic audience, that the, 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 the public protests and then the, the leadership feels it has to take a side. Totally. A lot of it is out of concern <clears throat> right. for how the public, how the, the so-called Arab street is is how it's referred to, yes. um, how the public will respond to violence in Gaza. You know, perceived attacks by Israel against Palestinians tend to have ripple effects across the public opinion, across the entire Arab world. So you saw that quite quickly. And then you saw Arab governments issuing condemnations, I think maybe to get ahead of public opinion, even before the evidence could confirm exactly what had happened 
at the hospital. And that has caused a shift. I mean, you, you saw uh, President Biden was supposed to go to Jordan to meet with uh, yeah. various Arab leaders. That meeting apparently is now off the table. So he is flying to Israel to just meet with the Israeli government, which is not going to look good, I think, for the president, broadly speaking, as he tries to contain this crisis. <laughs> So we have a question from our Discord. It is from Materials Dan, which is, you know, a, a good name for a good it. good odd lots <laughs> listener name. Hi, Materials, Materials Dan. Dan. <laughs> um, and he's asking about materials. Uh, so he's asking, how does the conflict affect relative demand mm. for different products like petrol, kerosene, distillates? Huh, that's a good question. Um, We're going to make you do this in real time. One that I would expect from Materials Dan. Thanks, Dan. <laughs> right now, yeah, like the market is kind of taking it in stride, the product market, I think. I think people are still, I think it's still important to look at the, the f picture that was coming together in fundamentals and sentiment before the crisis broke out. Um, you know, there's been some signs that Chinese demand in the fall was a little stronger than uh, some had thought. That's maybe encouraging a more bullish outlook for 2024 as far as products is con are concerned. The crisis hasn't really spilled out into markets quite yet. Yeah. Right. There hasn't been actual physical disruptions. There's been some movement in Brent, I think, caused by positions shifting. Although those came, you know, after the calamitous $11 plunge that Brent took right before the crisis happened. So, you know, you saw sentiment shifting there. The crisis hasn't really affected physical flows quite yet. It has caused, I think, a slight spike in some price indices. But I think the, the factors to still focus on are the fundamentals and the supply picture, the supply demand picture moving into 2024, where I think I still think there's a lot of uncertainty there, right? Could the US slip into a minor recession? Could demand fall off in the EU? Will China keep having the problems it's been having? This is pushing back against a little bit of the bullishness that OPEC, I think, was putting out uh, for the end of this year about, about where prices were going to be. Joe, you know one physical disruption that has happened? It's actually not in oil, but uh, our old friend, Evergreen, declared force majeure on a, a container oh. ship oh, in no. Israel, which I guess isn't really surprising. Yeah. But it's funny how like whenever there seems to be a physical disruption of any sort, like you will find Evergreen and their fleet of interestingly named ships. This one was called the Ever Cozy, affected in one way or another. Oh man. I think about that weekly. <laughs> the 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 Suez yeah, it's your Roman it Empire. It, yeah, it's my Roman Empire. But nice. I think about Roman Empire daily, as I think we all do. <laughs> I never got into that. There's still I'm, time, Joe. I'm looking at the Ever Cozy. It was built in 2021. Oh, that's interesting. So this is a relatively newer ship that was built. At, it was built in 2021, built at the peak of the shipping boom. And now freight global freight prices, this is interesting, despite the strength of the U.S. consumer generally, you would think that, and, you know, the particularly still strong, very strong goods demand. I think you would expect like freight and trucking prices to be more robust than they have been, uh, but they really haven't. I think I saw global container freight rates fell to a five-year low. Yeah. We're going to have to do another freight episode, I think. Definitely. Because it, a lot of people were predicting that it would be bad, but it has indeed turned out to be quite bad. A lot of, we have to do an episode at a time when a prediction turned out to be true. That's, <laughs> it, it sounds like what you're saying. Medium term for this crisis, this war, what are you looking for? What are what are going to be the sort of tells in terms of how long this could go on and so forth? Yeah, I mean, it's in an interesting phase right now because 
it's coming up on two weeks, a week and a half or so since yeah. the attack. Israel has been bombarding Gaza and has been planning an offensive, but still hasn't gone in. And I think a lot of the medium term uh, fallout from this crisis will depend on what the Israeli offensive in Gaza looks like and what their goal is. They still haven't said what they want to do. I mean, they want to destroy Hamas. That's clear. But how do you do that without, do you have to occupy Gaza? Do you have to carve it up into separate zones? Does the IDF have to occupy parts of the territory or push the population out? There's the refugee problem, right? Where do you move hundreds of thousands of Gazans if Egypt won't take them, if they can't be moved into Israeli territory? How do you launch a huge offensive when there's so many civilians uh, in the line of fire? So while the IDF continues to plan this offensive, I think everyone's kind of in a holding pattern because the scale of the offensive may determine how or mm. how or if other actors get involved. And there I would look specifically at what Hezbollah in Lebanon is doing. I mean, Hezbollah is a you know large armed militia. It dominates large portions of Lebanon. It's very closely tied to Iran. And there's been this constant skirmishing happening between Hezbollah and the Israeli military since the attack took place. Sort of kind of each side's warning the other to back off right, in case either side tries to take advantage of this crisis. And if things start to get really bad in Gaza, or if the Israeli offensive sort of really starts to push at what Middle East public opinion will accept, you may start to see signs that Hezbollah could escalate. There you have a U.S. threat, too, right? The U.S. has moved two carrier groups into the eastern Mediterranean. President Biden and Secretary Blinken have made very clear that the U.S. is going to back Israel. Uh, they've sent very clear deterrent signs against Iran to not get involved. Uh, so there's a potential uh, risk for the U.S. to become entangled in this, depending on how bad things get. But right now, I think everyone is kind of holding their breath to see what the outcome uh, of Biden's visit is, what the Israeli offensive in Gaza looks like, and also how regional public opinion continues to digest not just the disaster at the hospital, but the continued bombings of Gaza and the outcomes there. Greg, you mentioned Hezbollah, and I just got a flashback to one of the books that I read when I was heading out to Abu Dhabi and trying to do a crash course in Middle East history, which is pretty much impossible. That's the thing I learned. But there was this great book. It had one of the most fantastic titles that I've ever seen. It was called The Media Relations Department of Hezbollah Wishes You a Happy Birthday, Unexpected Encounters <laughs> in the Changing <laughs> Middle East. And it is funny because I think back to that book and like so much has changed even, you know, in the past 10 years since yeah. that book was published or so. But yeah. It just feels like, I mean, how many books are going to be written about this current conflict? I yeah. can't even imagine. Yeah. And, and it also gets to one one other element that maybe doesn't get quite the attention that it deserves, which is that these groups, Hamas, Hezbollah, Iran as well, um, they're fighting a war on several fronts, mm. right? They're fighting it with weapons and arms and, and, and you know, forces on the ground. They're also fighting what they see as being a war of ideas on social media mm -hmm. and in the press. These are political organizations. They conceive of themselves as having constituencies, right? People who will support them. And they have ideologies, right? They're selling ideas uh, as much as they are trying to fight a war against Israel or the IDF. So that's another thing to bear in mind, particularly when we look at things that Iran says, right? Iran is putting out rhetoric, putting out tough talk, uh, because in many ways they're trying to talk up their own sort of propaganda, their own ideology, their own perspective of the conflict. That doesn't necessarily mean they're going to do anything, right? That they might not actually get involved. Um, but it's important to bear in mind that these actors are are engaging in this conflict on multiple levels. Some of them are on social media. Some of them are just, you know, involving ideas, trying to get more support 
for their particular positions. Greg, other than your own book, what should I download on my Kindle this weekend if I want to be a little bit smarter about all this? Oh, boy. Man. I mean, there's... I very often point people towards the work of Rashid Khalidi, who's a historian of the Middle East. They're old now, but the writings of Edward Said, who's a Palestinian intellectual of the 20th century, are are, are always great. Oh, wait. Edward Said is like a little bit, that's a slightly controversial suggestion here. Isn't Con- it? Controversial, older, but I think still, you know, still, still vital to understanding where the conflict is coming from. Mm. I mean, there's so many books written more recently and and articles as well. I mean, for, for understanding Iran's role in this, I would point people towards the work of uh, Afshan Ostevar. He had a great article in War in the Rocks, I think just yesterday, about Hamas and Iran's relationship. I mean, the, the, the list is endless, really. There's, as, as you said, Tracy, you could read forever on this subject and still not, <laughs> still I, not fully understand how it goes. I tried. I tried for a few months and I, I didn't get very far. Um, Joe, you know what I just remembered? We should have back, remember the episode we did on Iranian stocks? The fund manager yes. who is investing in Iranian equities? That would be a, yeah. a super interesting perspective to have right now. All right, let's do it. Lots More is produced by Carmen Rodriguez and Dashiell Bennett with help from Moses Anda. Our sound engineer is Blake Maples. Sage Bauman is our head of podcasts. Catch you next time for Lots More. Thanks for listening. Hey there, it's Tracy Alloway and Jill Weisenthal. We are the co-hosts of the Odd Thoughts podcast, and we want to tell you about a new podcast and video series you are not going to want to miss. The Deal, co-hosted by Yankees legend Alex Rodriguez. Every week, A-Rod and Bloomberg reporter Jason Kelly speak with big-time athletes, entertainers, and executives like Maria Sharapova, Michael Strahan, Derek Jeter, and more. The Deal takes you behind the scenes into the world of sports, media, and entertainment and dives into the wins losses and lessons learned along the way from bloomberg podcasts and bloomberg originals you can listen to the deal on apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever you get your podcast you can also watch it on bloomberg television and bloomberg originals on youtube